Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. In this episode, we interview Beth Ann Telford. Beth Ann is a brain cancer survivor who has made it her mission to raise awareness for cancer research in ways that extend beyond conventional wisdom. Enjoy the show. Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I have a great guest for you today. Her name is Beth Ann Telford, and she has done some really amazing things and overcome some incredible obstacles. Um, May is Brain Tumor Awareness Month, and so we are doing this episode at a very um, excellent time. So welcome, Beth Ann. Oh, it's great to be uh, on on the radio with you live on this podcast. Very exciting. So tell me a little bit about um, what happened in 2004. You were running a marathon. Was this your first marathon or? No, this was not my first marathon. I had run a few prior. I had moved down to Washington, D.C. from Pennsylvania after 9-11 to help out in any way I could. And so I came down here. Um, to start Homeland Security. That uh, department was not yet formed under mm-hmm. the president. So came down here. And of course, um, you know, in, in school and in, in my later years, I played field hockey. I was a competitive field hockey player and, and softball and all that. But for those sports, you only had to run and qualify for the mile. So when I moved down here to Washington, D.C., I started running uh, longer distance, Mm -hmm. and I was wondering what all of these great organizations running, especially on the weekends and at night, what they were training for and running for. And it was the, um, lo and behold, the Marine Corps Marathon Mm -hmm. here right right in D.C. So I had run it several times prior, and the year that I ran it in 2004, it was the hottest uh, Marine Corps marathon they've had on record yet. And it's, you know, the Marine Corps marathon is always run in the last weekend of October. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is called the People's Marathon because there is no prize money. And it in, is invited to everyone to run this, this race. And I really enjoy it because it goes through um, the Pentagon area, Arlington Cemetery, and then over over to the district through all the wonderful monuments. And I just always enjoyed it and, you know, wanted to give back and was running this marathon. And unfortunately, mile 19, which that year happened to be uh, Haynes Point. Haynes Point is the little island Mm -hmm. that sticks out in the Potomac that separates D.C. from Virginia. And I felt a big pop in my head. And what do you mean? That is like a, a you heard a sound or felt like what? I, I felt, yeah, it, basically it's something like when you're flying in a plane and you're taking off and uh, you're going up elevation is same in a car where you have to clear your ears because yeah. they feel very, very clogged. So I felt that pop in my, in my head and I immediately, uh, you know, looked up because I was trying to clear and wondering what was going on because I wasn't, you know, going up in the air. Obviously I was right. running and I saw a light post. I remember to this day, we put a sign out there every Marine Corps marathon where it exactly happened. Now, that was mile 19. I ended up finishing the last seven miles of that race, um, not 
well oriented though. My gait, my running gait was off almost as if I was drunk. Mm-hmm. And I, I just felt very uneasy. In fact, when the initial pop started, I did bump into a couple people and just was not, you know, not knowing what was happening or where I was going. But it was not till three days later when I was back at my job, um, I had gone back to my job immediately that next day, Monday, but things were not happening like normal for me. I was forgetting very important dates. I was running into furniture that had been in place for several years. I got on our metro system and instead of going to Virginia, I ended up in Maryland. Just a lot of dysfunctional things that weren't the normal for me. So that's when, uh, I went into GW Hospital here in Washington, D.C., and got with my primary physician that I was seeing at the time, and he thought I had an inner ear infection. Now, at the same time, I was still seeing my doctor back in Hershey, Pennsylvania, in the the Harrisburg, uh, Hershey area, and I was telling him, too, of what was happening and, and how this all started, and my feeling was that moment on mile 19. And he didn't feel that it was an inner ear infection, and he got with the doctors at GW and ordered an MRI. And that MRI is what um, produced the site of the mass in the left side of my brain. Oh, wow. Wow. So what what next? (laughs) So what what, what, what was the emotion that you experienced at that time? Well, you know, this is about a week later after the Marine Corps Marathon that I had the MRI. And like the next day after the MRI, I got the call from the doctor at GW and it was the doctor. It wasn't the nurse. Uh And you have to remember this is 12 years ago. And, um, the doctor said, Beth, you got to come into my office. I need to talk to you about this MRI. And I, you know, at the time held a position where I was extremely busy and couldn't leave the work, uh, area. And, um, I begged him for probably about 10 or 15 minutes to tell me over the phone. And he reluctantly did tell me Mm -hmm. that it was uh, a mass in the left frontal lobe of my brain. And that it was called a brain tumor. Now, 12 years ago, I never, ever heard of anyone having a brain tumor. I've heard of tumors, but nothing in the brain. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I was set back. I didn't know, um, you know, something's growing in my head. I was 35 at the time. I, um, was single, you know, held a really good job, you know, used my abilities to, with my mind and everything in my brain, we all do, but I needed that. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to work. You know, all these things went through. And of course the doctors say, don't get on the internet. Don't do this. Right. Don't, don't look. look at Google. Well, was, yeah, well Google of course I did. Yes. Yeah. But of course course I did. Um, AOL was the big thing, Mm. you know, when you got on there. And um, of course I did because I didn't, I didn't know. And thank God for my boss at the time, he immediately called up his wife who took over my case and took me to five different cancer institutions and hospitals throughout the United States due to the fact the, where the brain tumor was located and the tail of the tumor, how it was wrapped around the major blood vessel to the brain. Um, she took me to different places that would even give me time uh, to talk about even operating. And the best place that I got uh, feedback and hope from was 
and it was so closer to my home and here to D.C., was John Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, um, and Dr. Henry Brem. So that April, April 12th, 2005, was my very first uh, brain surgery. Wow. So what was, what happened after the surgery? I mean, what was, when you woke up, was everything okay? Or was oh, it, did gosh. this begin like a, a massive process that everything changed? Well, even going into the surgery, they more or less tell you to get all your, your finances and your life in order. Oh, wow. And it's not, you know, you're, you're working and you're trying to make yourself, uh, you know, a career out of, you know, federal employee. And I, um, you know, my finances were all in my name except for a couple of things. So I had to really get everything in order and decide if something did happen to me um, that was fatal, who would receive my items, the house, you know, my jewelry, you know, all that, you know, believe it or not. And it was very hard on me because uh, at the time I did not alert my family members, uh, my parents who are still alive and my two older sisters, what was going on. So I was doing this all on my own with a caretaker and it was very hard uh, because I didn't know what or how I was going to come out of this, even if I could, if I did come out, if I was going to be able to manage, you know, a checkbook, yeah. let alone um, anything else. So, when so you going into it was very, not, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, so going into this whole thing was uh, very difficult. And, you know, I decided not to tell family until about two weeks prior to my surgery in April. And at that time, you know, there was a lot of hesitation um, prior, but I just wanted to deal with it on my own. Plus, I grew up with an alcoholic parent, my mother, and I didn't know if this was going to cause her to start drinking again or, you know, what it was going to affect the whole family. So I didn't want to have that extra burden on me. But uh, needless to say, I thought my father would be the easiest one to tell, but he was the hardest one to mm. tell. And he actually had a little bit of a breakdown, not a nervous breakdown, but a breakdown in the hospital. When I did go back for surgery, he was the last person to say goodbye to me and talk to the doctors and literally um, fell to his knees and um, couldn't handle it. Wow. Um, so, so it was very difficult not knowing what I was going to come out of the other end of surgery. I went in very healthy as far as um, I was fit. I was running a lot, so I didn't, you know, I was strong. Um, the only thing was this brain tumor. And thank God I went in fit and strong because I came back, you know, out of this surgery and the other surgeries that I've had because of my health um, so much easier than the, the, someone else in this situation. <laughs> situation. Um, but it, you know, it was a recovery period of being in ICU for several days and then not knowing, uh, one, if I walk right again, let alone ever run again. Um, so these were all things I was facing going into this. And I remember the car ride from Virginia to Baltimore, which is about an hour and a half. It was just so quiet. All my family was just so quiet and I tried to make jokes and mm -hmm. it, it just didn't work, you know, and I literally right. was scared myself. So, right. um, so if you had to do it all over again, would you have still waited that long to tell them? Do you think that was, you know, you know, I feel that, um, I did the right thing. Maybe I should have told them at least a month ahead because I did have a good month. 
Uh, but I feel like it gave me time to do things the way I wanted to do it instead of everyone pressuring me into right. doing different things. Uh, it seems like you were my- really intuitive as to what you needed. And I think a lot of times I hear when people have an illness or something, they they spend a lot of their time trying to make sure everyone else is okay, even though they're the patient. And so it seems like that that helped you a little bit. Yeah, it sure did. And and again, I didn't I didn't know what was going to happen with my mother, and I needed my mother. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, she had been, you know, dry, if you say, um, for several years, and you know, just the least little thing could have taken her over the edge. But again, it was um, it was my father that was the hardest, and um, you know, but I came out of it, and um, three was in ICU, and uh, the biggest step was to get my feet. Uh, off the side of the bed and try to walk. And I didn't realize at the time a couple things that were going to come of this was that I would lose sight in my uh, left eye and that, you know, um, the ability to have children down the way was not possible. So a lot of things from this, you know, I came out alive. So that was very, um, you know, very uh, thankful for that and blessed. But, you know, the thing with the children and, and the site, those were things I could overcome. Um, and I have over the last 12 years by um, learning to adapt with hardly any sight in my left eye and adopting all these kids that I fight for now um, mm-hmm. through my journey. Wow. So did they warn you of the, the vision being a, a very real risk of this? I would assume that that's probably a possibility with any sort of brain surgery. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a possibility, and especially where the, the tumor was. It was mm-hmm. right behind the left optic nerve. So there was uh, an issue with that. But, um, you know, I think the more that I was concerned about was my ability to walk uh, in and and run again. Right. And, and also speech is an issue too, mm-hmm. um, which I do suffer from that. I, I stutter when I get tired. And, um, then the other thing is seizuring and, uh, I'm monitored for that. Um, you know, you have to go 12 months without a seizure to get your license back. And I haven't, uh, I haven't hit that plateau yet, unfortunately. Oh, so I haven't driven in 12 years. So, wow. So how long was it after the surgery? You said, you know, the main concern was was walking again. So when did you sort of get back on your feet and were you able to walk and then run? So, you know, three days in ICU and then um, they started rehab with me trying to get me out of the bed. And then I would go into um, walking in the hallways, then rehabbing on the stairs, which was difficult because that was lifting left, lifting right. Um, higher than a normal step where I could really shuffle down the hallways in the, in the hospital. Um, so it was in that first week that I was actually walking again and then doing the stairs. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, um, you know, they said, just wait a good, you know, six, eight months to run again, uh, because my head needed to heal. But it was five months after my first surgery that I did, um, do a 5k where I was walking and my whole family was there and it was in my hometown of uh, Pennsylvania and the family was there. Now everyone started out walking with me except my father and I didn't know where he had gone, but 
my sisters, my two older sisters and my mother had said to me, Beth, now you're going to walk this, right? And I said, yeah, you know, because I was scared. I didn't know if I would run and then I would fall. Right. And, you know, my head was just uh, stapled together with staples for the incision. Um, but I got halfway through the 5K and I heard this voice and it took me back to the times that I was on, you know, the hockey fields or the softball or soccer fields. And it was my father. And he was yelling, Beth, come on, pick up the pace, run, run. And, you know, it was that moment there, the halfway mark of that 5K, that I knew that I was going to be okay because mm -hmm. I heard my dad's voice and I was comfortable and he was there for me. And I did. I started to slowly pick up my feet. Now, it felt so incredibly different because there was this hole in my head now and things were moving around there trying to make up the space. And it was just incredibly different for me trying to look and see and run with less than, you know, a little eye in left and my full eye on my right. Mm -hmm. But I heard his voice and I just knew that I was fine. And uh, I finished that 5K running. Now, my sisters and my, my mother were not happy, but my father was <laughs> very pleased. And um, so that's, uh, that's when it all started. And I got back to running. And then that October, I signed up and started and completed the Marine Corps Marathon, where just a year prior, it had um, brought me to the journey that I'm on and have been on for 12 years. Wow. Wow. So you said your dad took it really hard. Was that sort of that 5K, was that a moment for him as well that you were going to be okay? Do you think that's what made oh, yeah. him cheer for you, that you both kind of thought, okay, it's going to be fine, we're going to be okay? Yeah, you know, he had that planned. I know he did, and we've <laughs> talked about that in, in lots of my uh, speeches where, you know, he when we signed up for all of this 5K with the family and everyone was going to be there, I knew in the back of his head that he was planning something. And when he wasn't at the start and he wasn't chiming in about walking and making sure I would walk, I knew something was up. And then when I heard him, I didn't see him. I just heard him. And then I saw him, of course, when I got closer. Um, yeah. And I think that helped him to see me that I had the courage to pick up my feet and not shuffle. And he was just so proud and in, you know, that made me know that it was okay. And it wasn't the standard person yelling at me. Um, it was my dad. Mm -hmm. So how much of this journey from 2004 Marine Corps Marathon to the brain tumor, to the surgery, to the next time you did the Marine Corps Marathon, how much of that was just pure determination and mental toughness? I mean, how, how easy would it have been for you to just say, I'm not going to run ever again? Uh, really easy because I had an out. I yeah. had this out that I was I was sick and they didn't get the full tumor. So I had this incredible out if I didn't want to ever run or do anything competitive anymore. But for me, it was the determination to get back out there because I didn't want I, you know, for the first year I did feel sorry for myself. It's like, why me? You know, there's so many other people that, you know, should be suffering or that have caused harm to other people, um, you know, why me? And then it wasn't till after a year when my doctor knew that I was just taking this so hard and really, even though I had battled back and got back into running, not fast, um, but, you know, at, at a 
pace that I could complete a marathon, that he reminded me and took me on a little journey to tell me, hey, Beth, um, these children that are here in the cancer ward and and the children's ward at, at John Hopkins, they're not going to be going home with their family. And I was like, well, Dr. Brem, where are they going? And he said that their next stop was, um, you know, the morgue and then the funeral home. And these parents were going to leave without a child. And I didn't understand that at first. And then it sunk in. And then I started talking more to him and other people about the amount of funding children got. Now, remember, I'm 35, 36 now. Mm-hmm. And Anyone over the age of 19 from the federal government through NIH, National Institute of Health down here in D.C., gets 41% of funding for research for brain tumors, cancer, you name it. So anyone under the age of 19 um, only gets 4%. Oh, wow. And, and yes. And it's a huge you know, discrepancy. Uh, uh, you're telling me. Uh, yeah, it's wow. naughty. It, it's, it's incredible. And when I heard those, I thought maybe he was wrong. Maybe it was 14, 20, at least half, 24%. Um, but it wasn't. And another thing is that these doctors, researchers, scientists are spending over 55% of their office time in the office and not in the lab and not trying to find a cure. They're writing grants to get money to make up for this difference. So you have these scientists, doctors, researchers of course, they're going to go into the adult cancer um, research because they get more money to to fund a cure or whatever they're after in these labs. But they're not going into pediatric cancer. And I'm not just talking brain. I'm talking leukemia. I'm talking colon. I'm talking whatever these children get in the form of cancer. We're not. We don't have scientists or or ones that really want to experiment because we don't have the money. So is that so when I heard across the board, like all all pediatric cancers? You're exactly right. Yes. And a lot of these parents don't realize this. And some parents that, you know, have children under the age of 19 that have been sick, they don't know that either. And some of them don't know that until their kid or child is diagnosed. And um, so we've, especially me, have been advocating on the Hill for an increase in that. Um, And then with the moonshot deal started by Vice President Biden under the Obama administration, we've been trying to change that. The numbers have not changed, um, but we are working hard at trying to get those numbers to change. But last year, unfortunately, um, brain cancer outbeat leukemia because of all of the testing and money filtered to leukemia. And brain cancer now, unfortunately, for children under the age of 19 is the leading killer of children now. That's the leading cancer. Wow. So it, it, it unfortunately um, is number one for killing children. And for kids, um, you know, cancer across the board is the number one, is number, number four in deaths of children. So number one could be accidents, number two, childbirth, mm-hmm. you know, but number four is cancer across the board. But the cancer that is the number one killer is brain. Wow. So from your work with, with children, it, is it hard to diagnose it in children because they're, you know, obviously young and maybe some of them are too young to communicate, oh, my head hurts? Or, I mean, how, how do you even know, to, how do children even get diagnosed? I mean, do, yeah, is it their head they, hurting? Or? Yeah, that is one of the biggest, biggest uh 
what the children say they have, they have a headache that their head hurts and it continues to hurt or, you know, one day it hurts and they're vomiting and the next day it's fine. Uh, another huge thing is eye doctors find them when they, uh, the children come in complaining of sight problems and they look in their eyes and they can detect tumors. And so they send them for an MRI. Um, a lot of it is, uh, you know, your speech forgetfulness, but for children, it's so difficult because right. their brain brain is not developed like us. And, you know, sometimes the parent doesn't believe that the kid is sick. They just want a day off school right. or, or that, so forth. You know, I, I, mean, I was I've, there. I've got before. an eight year old who always has some ailment. Yeah. And it makes me, you know, it makes me pause a little bit when you say that. Yeah, now, when I was growing up um, and I was in school, I always complained, and I did have severe migraines to the point of coming home after school, not being able to eat, having to be in a very dark, cold room, Mm. and the best thing for me was to vomit to get the pressure off my brain. So, you know, my mom has talked with our uh, neurosurgeon and um, team of doctors about that, So this is something that I could have had for many, many years. And just thank God, you know, in the heat of the Marine Corps Marathon, you know, 20 years later, it's detected. Um, Thank God. Um, So who knows how long I've been living with it. But, you know, it is hard for children to be detected. But, you know, a majority of eye doctors are are the ones that are, are coming up with these brain tumors. So from a parental standpoint, those eye exams are a lot more important than we may think. They are exactly right. Yep. And then I would never hesitate to get an MRI for wow. a child wow. complaining of a head- headache, continual headaches. Mm-hmm. That's some good food for thought. So tell me about um, ABC2. So Accelerate Brain Cancer Cure is a foundation that I have been teamed up with for several years now. And it is um, it was started by Gene and Steve Case. And um, Steve's brother, Dan, died of a brain tumor. And what ABC Squared is, it's called Accelerate Brain Cancer Cure, is they are are a um abc squared they not are, two. looking listen to me non-math person over here <laughs> well it's it's a two, it's a two up on the corner <laughs> but um they they fund about so far 52 different um researchers universities hospitals organizations with funding to help find a cure for brain cancer and they are on the cutting edge of um trying to find a cure for brain cancer. And they just have been amazing trying to find a cure and and working with um, Joe Biden now and some other researchers. And I just feel like yesterday, believe it or not, was the 5K here in Washington, D.C., which is the largest 5K for brain uh, tumor awareness. And we had over 10,000 people out there, uh, joining in the fight. Um, and that's one of their races. And so I teamed up with them and through their research and, and guidance, they, they try to, um, fund over, they've done a hundred grants totaling $20 million. Um, like I said, to 54 institutions, just trying to find new treatments that, that fall into the category that they believe in. 
And those beliefs are things that I believe in. And when people ask me what organization they should go with, I, I give them the names of organizations, but I say this is why over the 12 years I have um, dedicated all my uh, athletic abilities. And I don't have a 501c3, so it all goes directly to ABC Squared and mm-hmm. every penny that is donated goes right to research through ABC Squared, which is another great, great uh organizational um, aspect that they have. And um, I just feel like family to them. And they know most of the people on their team have been affected by brain tumors, brain cancer. So that's, that's about ABC squared. Very good. So I will post up a link to ABC squared, not ABC two. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well it is, it's ABC and then the number two. So it's just hyphenated like the scientific, uh, you know, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of your accomplishments. I do not want to get off the phone with you without <laughs> talking about what you've done. So the last thing we mentioned was this, the Marine Corps Marathon, your, your kind of comeback. But tell me some of the amazing things you have done since then. Well, sure. I mean, this year, though, you know, with Marine Corps Marathon, which is the marathon I just absolutely love, and I will never stop doing that. Even if I have to speed walk and crawl to the finish, this year will be my 15th year in a row doing that. Wow. And I just, the race director, Rick Nealis, and I have forged a wonderful relationship. And, you know, to be able to give back, like I said, I moved down here to D.C. to give back. I never served, and it is, even though it's the People's Marathon, it is for the military, and it's just a wonderful way um, to give and see the wonderful sights in DC. But I was able to also then, uh, after having two brain surgeries, I was able to come back and qualify six times for the Marine Corps, I mean, for the Boston Marathon, excuse me. So I've qualified and run um, the Boston Marathon six times. I have been able to um, do Ironmans and the most prestigious Ironman I was able to attend was, of course, the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. Um, And that was in 2012. And that was, I thought, was going to be the cream of the crop for me. Uh I truly thought that was it. And as soon as I came across that finish line again, you know, my father and I had a pediatric child there. They were all there rooting. And it was just a dream come true for me. And I've been able to scale down two different skyscrapers, one on the West Coast in San Diego and right here in Washington, <laughs> D.C. What? Yes. No, um, no. Yeah. No, no, yes. No, no. It, it was awesome. <laughs> and, um, wait, you know, doing, wait, wait, wait. We got to talk about the skyscraper. Yeah. Um, okay. Why and how and how tall? <laughs> so I am never, 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 never. I can't even watch the Tom Cruise movie where he's in some major city and I can't even watch the, the skyscraper scene. So yeah. Which, how, tell me about it. Just tell me. So we, on the West coast, we went out to San Diego and the, um, Hyatt out there is the tallest building out there. And I think it was 30 some odd floors that we oh, repelled and, and came down off of. And that was awesome because I did it with a girlfriend that uh, had a brain tumor. And unfortunately, um, during my latest journey, which we'll get into, she had passed just, uh, you know, just 
while I was away, which was very sad for me, um, especially when you lose someone that is somewhat the same age and they know what you're going through and you can pick up the phone and cry to each other. Um, but anyway, she and I scaled, she was so nervous, but, uh, she did it and we had a good time and I joked around. Of course, I felt like I had nothing to lose like I did in Ironman. So what the heck if I die there, you know, what, what does oh it matter? Goodness. And but then what were you came thinking back when you leaned over I mean, I can't fathom that. I consider myself fairly brave, but heights are are just something I can't fathom. I mean, what was going through your head when you leaned over the edge? Again, my primary uh, cause and my platform is for pediatric children. Uh-huh. And but by the time I get into these major events like the Ironman World Championship and these these very high intense endurance um, ability athletic abilities. I think about these kids and I think Mm -hmm. about them not coming out of a hospital bed. And if they do come out, a lot of them don't walk again. They, they are mute. They can't talk, you know? Um, so I think about what I've been able to do in the 35 years before I was diagnosed. You know, I went to the prom like you probably Mm did. You and I've both got speeding tickets and tried to cry our our way out of them. (laughs) You know, we've, we've really put our parents to the test. These children, have not, or will never get to do that. And I think, and when I looked over the side in San Diego, which was the first building I repelled over, I thought, you know, this is awesome. Um, you know, we were recording it. If I can show this to these kids that are sick, that I don't have fear and they should look this cancer in the eye and say, I don't have this fear either. Sometimes that helps Mm -hmm. with recovery. Um, so that's what I think about in, you know, so when I'm going over these edges and I did here in DC in a very tall building as well with another pediatric child who I thought would have been like gun ho, he was very, very nervous. And like myself, when he heard his father yelling for him, he was fine. Wow. And, um, which I thought was really cool because, you know, I could relate to that, but he was very scared. He started to a little, you know, tear up and I thought, you know what, you're pretty tough. You know, he was, I think he's 15. He's 15, but he's a very, he plays varsity baseball and he's just incredible kid. I just love him. Jake is his name. And I was just amazed. And I was giving him a little crap up there. I was saying, Hey, look, (laughs) you know, you're the tough one. You're the one that plays ball and is, you know, you know, jumping into lakes and things like that. And you're afraid to do this. So by the time he heard his dad's voice, he he let up a little bit, but it was a lot of fun. And I have that on tape too. So I use that against him, but, um, (laughs) you know, I was able to go into a jet and, uh, we flew from Virginia beach over Yankee stadium. I'm a Yankee fan. And, you know, we went, you know, did cartwheels in this jet. I did vomit, but, but it was just fun. And I took the kids, we, we, we filmed the whole thing and they were going to cut out the part where I got sick. And I said, no, because we all get sick. We get sick on this chemo. We, you know, so show them that I'm not someone that can withstand, you know, 300 miles per hour in this jet, you know? Wow. So we kept that in there and, you know, I was able to crossed the canyon, um, in the rim to rim. We ran it. Um, we were supposed to do it in 13 hours. We did it in nine. Oh my and, goodness. Wow. Um, yeah. And then I've done, you know, New York city marathon and some other great marathons, but my biggest event of course, and I'm sure that's what everyone wants to hear is in January, 
I was able to compete in what's called the World Marathon Challenge, which is running seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. And it started in the continent of Antarctica due to the fact of landing a plane on the ice iceberg out there. So wow. And did that you do this was, for the fundraiser too? To raise funds? Yes. Okay. Yes. All of it was to raise awareness and funds for Accelerate Brain Cancer Cure. And we had a great campaign. It's still going on. And we... Um, to date, I'm almost at a million dollars. Um, wow. and that's, that's the, over the 12 years of raising funds, but a lot of it has come over these last couple years doing these very epic, um, adventures. Mm-hmm. But, um, I've done a lot of different charity in, you know, endurance events, but this has to be the farthest out there that I have ever done. And going into it, I had a lot of people thinking, oh my gosh, uh, please don't do this. Or, you know, please, we're afraid. Then of course the people on Facebook, the trollers, they were like this, (laughs) you know, you shouldn't be doing this. You should be home in bed. But, you know, full time I work for the federal government. I have been since I moved down here and I continued through my um, illness. And I was able to, you know, work my full-time job, an eight-hour day job, sometimes more, and train two to four times a day for a year and a half, um, getting ready for this event that started in January. And um, January the 21st, Inauguration Day, uh, is when we started, and we ended up that following Sunday. And it started, of course, like I said, in Antarctica. Then we, you know, of course, we were there for three days to get active acclimated to the coldness and, and try, we had some buffer room just in case the plane couldn't land. Can you possibly get acclimated to that cold though? Uh, you know, out of the seven marathons, that wasn't the toughest and everyone thought, and so did I going into it. Um, I was quite warm because I packed and was told by previous participants and by the race director what to bring. Mm -hmm. And I had some great gear and I felt good. The only thing that happened is by the end of my marathon time, a front came in and I was running or really like crawling through uh, snow drifts up to my knees. Um, So that was difficult, but it was just absolutely stunning. And to be able to run in that continent um, is just you know, how many people get to say that they did that, let alone the other seven continents and in seven days. So we were there for three days. And of course, we took off on the 21st and of January. And that afternoon, we took off the plane that they take into Antarctica is a Russian plane. It's a huge cargo plane. So that was in itself just amazing to um, be in that and watch us land because they filmed it all. And we could watch us the, the the plane land on this iceberg. Oh my goodness! And um, then there was only so much of a window to get out of there with the weather. So we had to even before we started the marathon in Antarctica, had to have everything packed up and ready to be placed on the plane, so that when we were finished, we would get right on the plane and head back to Chile, um, where we would run the next marathon the next day. Um, and most of our time, we were about 158 hours in the air was spent in the air. Um, and when we were not in the air sleeping or eating or trying to rehab, we were running. 
Um, wow. Only one, one night out of the seven did we get a shower, and that was in um, Marrakesh, Morocco, in the African area. So we went back to Chile, of course, ran there. We got a charter plane from Chile then, which was very nice because then we everything stayed on the plane. We didn't have to go through the regular customs. Even We did customs, but not like a normal mm-hmm. uh, flight. And then we came to United States where I had about 35 friends and family um, in the audience and cheering me on. And each marathon was a loop, more or less. And we would do anything from four loops up to um, 13, depending on where and what the course was. In so where continent. did you run in the U.S.? So South Beach in Miami. Okay. And uh, what was funny is my dad, uh, you know, he, he was there for a week. He came down to be with friends and he, he likes Florida. And my mom was there, of course, and I said some other family and friends. And a lot of my friends ran with me, but my dad would sit at the where I would do the turnaround, which was also the finish. And he said, can you hurry up? Can you go a little <laughs> bit faster? Each loop. And I was saying, dad, okay, I just came off of two marathons and I have four more to go. You know, I'm supposed to be pacing myself and my trainer, you know, wanted me to keep a five hour marathon. And, you know, I was keeping a 430. Oh goodness, so, um, which was, you know, pretty good for seven days. I'm a yeah. 350, yeah, yeah, yeah. 345 <laughs> marathoner, you know, cause that's what I need for qualifying a 345. So to slow up is very difficult. Um, it, I know it sounds crazy, but it is difficult. And then he thought, you know, after the marathon, I was going to have time to sit down and have dinner with him and spend some time. I'm like, dad, I'm out of here. <laughs> so funny. after, uh, South beach, then we went over to, um, Spain. And that was the fourth marathon. And that was my fastest. And other than having family with me, um, the most, I loved it. It was just beautiful because of the fact, um, it reminded me of my hometown. Mm -hmm. So, um, after then we went to, um, South America, uh, then United States, then Spain. Then we went to Africa. So we went to Marrakesh Mm -hmm. and we ran there and it was hot, but not until the very next day. That was the night we had the hotel room and then we flew out that morning. And that very next day we went to Dubai and Dubai was like 110 degrees. And that was the hardest marathon for me. I would imagine. Very, very hard. Um, so that, that day, a lot of us slowed up and we were taking, um, you know, in a lot of ice and a lot of fluids and the whole time there was 30 some of of us that were competing. There was no bantering about who was winning, who was doing this, who was that everyone was for each other. So you had the lead person who is my dear friend, Michael Wardian from right here in the same area that I'm in, in in the DC area was handing off ice bags to me at the same time he was running two forty-five marathons, you know, and, you know, so, and then you had Ryan Hall, who's a very famous gold medalist Mm -hmm. that was assisting me too. Um, one night he even carried my bags. So everyone was for everyone completing this and learning their story. Some people didn't even have stories. There was people there that were retired and just wanted to do it because they had the money and the time to do it. Other people were, um, you know, there was a younger gentleman from New York that of course had the money and was a bucket list, you know? So there was only several of us that had stories. 
So after Dubai uh, was our long flight from Dubai, then ending up in Australia. And uh, that was, we started at midnight and ran through the night um, in Australia. And, and that was the last, um, the last of the, uh, the marathons. And it just went by so incredibly fast. But what's so great about it is I forged, you know, 30 some odd friendships. And mm-hmm. from the flight from Dubai to Australia, the race director, Richard Donovan, he passed out paper and we were to vote for the people that we felt should wear, win these sportsmanship awards. Now, these awards were provided by a previous participant and he wanted to finance some charities and he thought the best way to do that would be to ask the participants from the 2017 event to vote on the colleagues. So um, when we finished in Australia, the race director announced who won the sportsmanship awards and lo and behold, I was one of the winners. And to me, that was, you know, yes, I did complete all seven. I proved to people that this could be done, even though I was sick and I was doing it for people that was sick. But I was more excited about the sportsmanship award because I knew my father would be so happy about you know, knowing that his daughter was liked, uh, you know, on this seven day adventure where I could have been like, don't touch me, don't get around (laughs) me. You know, I smell, I just want to quit. Um, but you know, that was, that was humbling to me. And I, I can't thank my teammates enough about that. That is just incredible. So that was, what is that? The world marathon challenge? Yes, World Marathon Challenge. I can just hear a bunch of people, um, listeners saying, "Oh, I got to do that." <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> well, you know what's great is the race director for the Boston Marathon. He is doing it in 2018. Um, I can give you that. I I do know that. I do know some. I've gotten lots of calls from people that are considering doing it. It's just coming up with the money. I was blessed to have a wonderful sponsor that footed the bill for me. Um, and I was very cautious about that Meredith, because I, you know, every dollar that I have that is extra, I want it to go to research and to find a cure, but the reward that we got, I've done over 87 media outlets all over the world, mostly of course here in the United States, but I did them in Australia. I did it in Spain, you know, you name it, but the return has been so wonderful in the awareness that you can't put a price on that. So it was so worth it. And if someone does have a cause, I think that they should, you know, pursue after this and find someone to um, sponsor them. And then I do have a friend that's in Texas that currently has a brain tumor that is very much considering uh, doing it as well. Um, His name is Chris. So you might be able to know if he's doing it in the next couple of weeks. So it has been really catching on. Mm-hmm. There is, um, I know there is another organization that claims they do seven marathons, seven continents in seven days, but they do not do it on the continent of, uh, the main continent of Antarctica, which is very imperative, um, to be able to be a world marathon challenge, uh, recipient. So what did you think when you were flying into Antarctica? To me, that would be like the most terrifying 
moment of my life. Well, yeah, because again, going in, I thought that that was going to be the challenging one for right. me. And, you know, we had three days of no internet, you know, no way to contact people. I did buy for $35 for a couple minutes time to call back on a satellite phone to talk to family, my parents. Um, but the guys, they were like bantering a little bit in fun about how fast that they were going to go. And there was only a couple girls on this trip, one lady from Ireland that was blind and another girl that was running from, um, from England and another lady from, I, I think Ireland that was running as well. And, you know, we didn't really care. We wanted to go out and finish. We mm -hmm. didn't want to know that our first marathon was going to be in five hours or four hours or whatever these guys were saying but you sit around and you're playing games with these guys and they're like bannering back and forth well, well right when we had our team meeting about the next day and what time the event was going to start the girl from Ireland I mean from yeah from Ireland that was blind she had a breakdown oh no she's she lost it so then it was like a domino effect another girl lost it and then I thought oh my gosh I started crying and I'm thinking, oh my, am I going to be able to do this? Now, previously, a year and a half training for this, I only had one panic attack and it was the middle of the night. And I was just overthinking all of this. And I think I was tired. I was training a lot. So that was the only time I really had a doubt about myself. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I knew that knowing what these kids were going through, knowing what I had gone through as an adult and what other adults have gone through, I could do this. This was nothing. Right. Um, so then it was just like that day before I was, I had to like go back to my little clamshell. That's what they called them. These little tents that we slept in and get away from everyone and, and be like, get my head back into the game and know why I was there. Look at the 14 pairs of shoes that New Balance had sent me and were you know designed by these pediatric kids because I changed out my shoes every half marathon. So twice for each continent, I had a new pair of shoes designed by pediatric uh, warriors. Oh, that's and, awesome. um, yeah. And so I looked at that. I read the letters that these kids wrote me. Um, they sent me letters for each continent. And it just reassured me that I got to just, this is me. I got to listen to my body and do my own, no matter if there's a girl in front of me. I didn't even want to be the first girl. I just wanted to be there and prove to others that it could be done and, prove that it wasn't about Beth Ann Telford. It was about finding a cure and finding funding for a cure. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy and I don't want to say easy, but it's so much easier when you do anything for a reason outside of yourself. I oh, mean, I agree it makes that the pain of whatever so much better. And I don't think that I could do a marathon in Antarctica, but I would definitely <laughs> need a cause <laughs> to make me do it if I did. Yeah. And I, and you know, if it's in your heart and if it's instilled in you and, you know, my father and, and mother instilled in me, the Winston Churchill, um, quote, never, never, never give up. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've just lived by And you know, I've overcome an alcoholic parent. I've over, I'm, I'm trying to overcome this brain cancer and I'm trying to be the next Susan Komen trying to fight for a cure. And, you know, that's all in my heart. And, again, it's not about me. It's about these other people in the, in the future it, it are our children. And if I'm not going to fight for them, you know, I need other people to help me. Absolutely. Well, Beth Ann, thank you so much. I'm going to post up all the links to 
the organization and how you all can get involved, but you are definitely an inspiration. And I think what you are doing is just fabulous and heroic. And um, one other question. Um, sure. What's next? <laughs> what are you going to do You next? know, um, that's, that's a question that everyone asks me. Um, I am taking, I've been doing a lot of paddle boarding, so I will be doing a lot of paddle boarding this summer, but I am running. I mean, I'll run Chicago this year and I'll run, of course, Marine Corps. But there is a couple things in in the plans to do, and that's anything from hiking several, uh, almost a thousand miles to, you know, there was this thought of if I could get into space and do a uh, marathon on a treadmill, I'm there. Oh, you wow. know, I'm, I'm <laughs> totally there. Um, there's a lot of things. And I ask for people to send me ideas, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that are logistically, they can be done. So we'll see. Um, um, you know, it, oh, that's how this came about. People find these wonderful events for me to do and champion. And I hope that by doing them, not only finding a cure, um, and funding, I'm inspiring others not to do something so epic as this, but to do uh, a 5k, a one miler or park farther away from the grocery store or the shopping center and take those extra steps. Not, don't be trolling around for the closest parking space. You know, park farther away and get those extra steps in. You know, these Fitbits are great and these Garmin's where you can see how many steps you're going. You know, take the stairs instead of the elevator. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that I'm inspiring um, adults to do this. And then the children that see my story and that I visit in the hospital beds just to you know, not laying bed and feel sorry for themselves, but swing their feet alongside the bed, stand up and maybe walk to the bathroom or take a walk with their parents down the hall to the community room or art center. So I'm hoping that that's happening. Um, and I'm hoping that's what I'm going to leave in my legacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this podcast is called the same 24 hours. And the idea came because we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we each individually do in those 24 hours that, that leaves a legacy that sets us up for success and happiness. So what is it that you do consistently, consistently every, every 24 hours, every day that you feel that makes a big difference in in your goal and in your mission? Um, giving back every day. I try to find a way to give back and it could be simply by, you know, holding the door for someone. But my biggest thing is when I start the day, I don't walk out of my house without seeing the plaque that I was telling you about that hangs over my doorway that my parents uh, got. And it says, never, never, never give up. Mm -hmm. And I try to live that every day and, and give back every day. Um, you know, just like if I'm coming to the Metro and I see someone that needs help to get on the escalator. So just giving back, giving of myself, um, doesn't have to be, you know, at an expense money, but just saying something nice to someone and and hearing their story, because we all have a story. It doesn't matter. It could be a divorce. It could be, you know, a loss of a loved one, a loss of a job. You just don't know what the person next to you that you have no idea who that person is, is going through. It might be a lot worse than what I'm going through. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you giving back and and taking the time to be on this podcast. I know that you've definitely made a difference in my day and um, and everyone else's. So thank you so much, Beth Ann. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you again um, for having me. It means a lot to so many. Absolutely. And keep us posted on what's next. Okay, great. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.